and welcome to the Great Women Artists Podcast. It's Katie here, and just before we get into today's episode on the brilliant Florine Settheimer, I want to let you know I have written a book, which is out this September. Published by Penguin, the story of art without men aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. It is available to pre-order now from Waterstones and more, and I have linked to the book in the show notes. But in this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the past two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection, handcast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. A love letter to Florence. In honour of Dante Day, Roche travelled back to Florence, the hometown of the incredible Italian poet and inspiration behind the brand, Dante Alighieri. Roche fell in love with Dante's work and the story of being lost in a dark wood, journeying through to find the light and find his way out of the dark. As an ode to Dante, the signature monogrammed Alighieri ring was launched to celebrate the inspiring poetry of Dante. Many believe that Dante Alighieri wrote the Divine Comedy as a love letter to Beatrice Pontinari, a woman he longed to be with. Henry Holiday's 1884 Dante and Beatrice shows Beer snubbing Dante on the Ponte Santa Trinita in Florence. The Flame of Desire Locket necklace is dedicated to the fraught love affair between the two. The surreal heart-shaped amulet embodies the complexity of love and the ups and downs that it brings. At the forefront of Russia's love story with Florence is their Ilioni medallion, one of the first pieces created by Roche after she had stumbled on an old Venetian coin in a market in Florence. The coin had an engraving of a lion which she felt so clearly depicted the one which Dante had described throughout his work. Roche took this as an inspiration and created her own medallion, which was a secret message to herself to be brave. The Leone medallion is the perfect starting piece for any layering look to bring you strength and courage on your adventures. You can visit the full collection at www.alighieri.com and just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the esteemed scholar Barbara Blumink, a graduate of Yale where she received her PhD, 
Barbara Blumink has had an extensive career holding director or chief curator positions at art museums such as the Smithsonian's National Design Museum, Cooper Hewitt, Guggenheim Hermitage Museum, the Hudson River Museum, Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art and Anderson Ranch Arts Centre. She has also published numerous books and lectured and taught internationally on art and design. But the reason why we are speaking with Barbara today is because she is also the world expert on Florine Stettheimer. Not only has Barbara written extensively on the visionary artist and co-curated shows, such as the Florine Stettheimer Retrospective Exhibition at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1995, but this past February, she has just brought out a new biography of the artist, which repositions Stettheimer as one of the 20th century's most significant and progressive artists, examining why her unique work remains relevant today. A feminist multimedia artist, jazz age saloniste, poet and designer who captured the vibrancy and momentum of New York City's growth between the world wars. Stettheimer worked across words, painting, furniture and even costume design. To me, she was a revelation and just as her friend Georgia O'Keefe described her, fantasy and reality all mixed up. She was perfectly consistent with any of her inconsistencies. Barbara Blumink, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Terrific. And what a wonderful description. That is Florine Stettheimer, really accurately. Amazing, amazing. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to speak to you on just one of the 20th century's most daring, most innovative, yet still so underrecognized artists who painted the glittering world of Europe and New York at the start of the 20th century. Yet Stettheimer was so much more than that. Above all, she was a visionary who pioneered every field she found herself in, whether it be making costumes for Gertrude Stein's opera or boldly presenting herself in a fully nude self-portrait or inventing a new language for modernism, which was so brilliantly, charmingly and uniquely her own with its whimsical figures who burst among the skyscrapers. So I want to start off by asking you, when did you discover Florin Stettheimer and what were your initial reactions? Okay, this is a sort of funny story. I was in graduate school a long time ago at Yale, and a lot of my professors were trying to get me to do a PhD dissertation on some 19th century male artist, because that's all people were studying. And I was leaning towards O'Keefe, but I didn't want to do a paper that only other graduate students would ever read. But I was reading one of George O'Keefe's letters, and it was very funny. And she was saying, my husband Stieglitz was taking a bath, and he got out, and he tripped and fell, and he damaged his thumb. And he was all upset and said he had to go to the doctor. And I said, no, just put a bandage and a popsicle stick on your thumb, and let's go up to Lake George. And no, no, he had to go to the emergency room. So he sat there for hours, and and finally, we saw the doctor, and the doctor put a bandage and a popsicle stick, and aren't men impossible? So I went to see who she wrote the letter to, and she wrote the letter to someone named Florine Stettheimer. So I looked up who Florine Stettheimer was, and Yale's library happened to have three of her paintings, and they were these bright, funny, wonderful paintings. So I went to my professor, and I said, no one has written about this artist. She's fantastic. I love her. And they have her letters here. And he said, 
well, no, she's not a very good artist. I said, doesn't matter. I'm going to write about her. She's a modernist, and the Whitney's never done a show on her, and so I'm going to do it. And everybody said, what are you writing about this not very interesting, not very good artist? But I convinced the Whitney that they needed to do an exhibition, <laughs> and that's how I found Sploy and Stedhammer. And no one had ever cataloged her life, found all of her paintings, and so I was lucky enough to do this. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. And I mean, what was it about her work that you were really drawn to? Or was it her life or was it her? I saw a painting called Soiree, which is a picture she did of her salon. And it's based on a Velasquez painting, Las Meninas, with a large picture shown on an easel from the back and a couple men sort of looking at it who are Leger and, and Gris, two famous artists that she knew. And then there are a couple people who I've been identifying as her sisters. And then she is sitting there with a couple other people on sofa, and she is looking back at a picture hanging on the wall, which is her nude self-portrait. Yeah. And there's only one other person looking back at this nude self-portrait, which was shocking at the time. And that's a woman who's going, ah! And the painting was hysterically funny, and I burst out laughing. And no one ever laughs at artwork, right? I mean, artwork's always serious. And I thought, who is this woman? This is a very funny picture. It's based on Velasquez, seriously, but it's funny. I mean, who is this? So I fell in love. I think it's impossible not to fall in love with her work, just in the sense that they are so rich, they're so vibrant, but yes, so humorous. I mean, the fact that she paints grass as yellow and all these kind of crazy kind of milk-like snowy textures. And it's just, it's just fantastic. It's just bursting with energy and joy and vibrancy. And they're huge. Yeah. I mean, first of all, she was tiny. She was very thin and small. She was wealthy. She was from a family that felt doing anything publicly was terrible. Um, (laughs) She didn't have to work. And this is one of the things that I think is fascinating. George O'Keefe was very ambitious, and she picked the most important gallerist in America. And Stieglitz framed her work, marketed her work, showed her work, sent to exhibitions. Stedheimer had every gallery in New York asking her, including Stieglitz, desperately wanted her to be one of his artists. She refused. So somehow this woman, without any support, got her work framed, sent to exhibitions, mounted, packed, all by herself. And she got up and painted paintings that were 60 by 50 inches. Oh my gosh. Right? She also designed these amazing, intricate frames that are sculptures all by herself. One of the myths about her is that she was so shy that after she didn't sell anything in her first exhibition in America when she'd only been back a year, that she never showed publicly again except to her friends. Florine Stedheimer showed 46 times during her (laughs) lifetime, including in the first Whitney Biennial. Wow. All of the early MoMA exhibitions, the Carnegie International, every year at the Society of Independent Artists, and two salons in Paris. 
But she somehow got all of her own paintings packed, shipped, sent to the exhibitions. This is a hell of an ambitious professional woman. Totally. Not only are her paintings kind of bursting from her imagination and she's just this absolute visionary in every field. She pioneers, but also she's a businesswoman. Exactly. And the interesting thing is, from 1915, early on, she had white pantaloons made, which she wears in many of her paintings, which were, number one, a sign of being a suffragette. But also, it helped her climb up on a ladder and paint. And I looked up the books she mentions reading throughout her life in her diaries. They're all biographies of strong women or books written by feminists at the time throughout her life. And to think this is a woman who was born in the early 1870s and she died before even the Second World War was over. I mean, she she was a turn of the century woman and it's actually, it's very easy to forget because also the paintings look so modern. They look so fresh. Exactly. They look like they were just painted. They're all bright primary colors. And the number of contemporary women artists who say they're influenced by her from Kiki Smith on till today are remarkable. Yeah, she's an artist for today. But I want to go back to the beginning of Florine Stettheimer's very full life. She was born in 1871 in Rochester in New York to a German Jewish family, the fourth of fifth children, and her father, a banker, ran out on the family when Florin was just still very young. And therefore, she was also raised by a matriarch household, which might also suggest why she was such a feminist. Tell us about her childhood and was art present in these early years of her life? Yes, her father actually had a huge clothing industry in Rochester, which failed during the recession. And the father ran away to Australia, just deserted them. So the mother was the wealthy one. She was part of the huge hundred German Jewish families. When the father left, Florine was only a tiny child. And the mother then very quickly moved near her, one of her eldest sisters who had a place in Germany. And they spent the first 40 years of Florine's life living most of the year in Europe. What happened was Florine was the only one who loved art. And she studied with tutors very, very early and went to school in Germany, but traveled throughout Europe all the time studying art in museums. And she learned German academic painting. Then went to college, she came back to the Art Students League, where women could paint from male nudes. Wow. Everywhere else in America, women were not allowed to paint or draw from real nude men. So by the time she left, Florine could paint as well as any man. I mean, she could paint beautifully realistic paintings. I know there's that amazing nude study standing with hand to shoulder, which I'll share in the show notes for the listeners from 1895. And it's just so tender. I mean, you know, it's sort of like Ang meets the post-impressionist. I mean, it's just there's so much expression in the face, but also the paintwork is so beautiful. But also just the body is executed in such an elegant sort of flesh-like way. Right. And then when she was in Europe, before the artists in America... She did paintings based on all the post-Impressionism. She saw the Cubists 
and she fell in love with Matisse. Wow. And and she would write hysterical critiques <laughs> about everything she saw in Europe. She had a really biting sense of humor. But she would go around, and when she saw Botticelli's Venus, she said, oh, really, its underarms are a little too fat. (gasps) You know, Michelangelo really could use a little slimming here and there. And (laughs) I hate von Stuck. These symbolists just try to cover up their lack of ability to draw by calling themselves symbolists. I mean, (sighs) really catty. But then she fell in love with other artists. I mean, this is fascinating, but also I love the fact that, you know, perhaps her work, you know, it's impossible to categorize because she does draw from so many different sources. And I'm aware that while she was in Europe, she became enraptured by Sergei Diaghilev's Ballet Russes. I mean, how did the ballet influence her work? Oh, completely. You absolutely put your finger on the main influence of her work. Everything in Stedheimer's work was influenced by the Ballet Russe in theater. Ballet Russe totally changed Europe and its aesthetic because uh, Diaghilev believed that ballet, uh, his ballet, was going to be something called Gesamtkunstwerk, which was, up till then, ballet was just very anemic, just little dancing. He brought in the best stage designers, the best musicians, the best costume designers in Europe, as well as the best dancers. And this wonderful Russian dancer called Nijinsky, who was erotic and fabulous and handsome. Amazing. Well, she was so inspired by the idea of a fully integrated ballet that it did two things. It made her believe that paintings can be part of a whole integrated idea and made her design furniture later as well and frames. But she immediately went and designed her own ballet for the Ballet Russe out of shoeboxes. And there was a new material called cellophane that had just been invented. (laughs) Yes. And so in these little cardboard, she created a ballet that's a little bit of a self-portrait where the society lady, Georgette, young woman with her father, is riding by in a carriage, and they see a group of art students doing a great parade. And she stops the carriage The artists take her down, they undress her and put on this fabulous art costume. She dances with them all night. There are unicorns and and tigers they're riding on. Then the sun comes up, she gets back in her, you know, beautiful clothes, and she gets back in the carriage with her father, and they drive away. And she put pearls on these little costumes and velvet, and they're all beautifully made. And they still exist at MoMA. When she later developed her mature style of painting, it is exactly these figures that are in her paintings. Wow. And also, I'm fascinated, you know, her and her sisters, the Stettis. 
I love the fact that, you know, her sister Carrie spent more than 20 years fashioning Doll's House Mansions, which I think c- contains miniature artworks by friends. I think Duchamp even made a mini new descending a staircase and Andy Warhol was completely enraptured by it. And then Etty wrote novels of female independence. So they had this such rich life that just was coming up at all angles and clearly inspired them to do so many different things and go in so many different directions. Yes. And in fact, the dollhouse is, is just been revamped is on view in the museum, the city of New York. Yeah. And Eddie's books always got terrible reviews, but Eddie was absolutely brilliant. The reason for this is they had an aunt, Aunt Jo, who was the first woman intern in America. Wow. The first woman to graduate from Columbia Medical School and started a hospital for women's diseases in New York. Oh, my God. So this was their aunt. This was the kind of example they had growing up of independent women. Oh, my goodness. Just this matriarch. I mean, their lives must have been so rich and no wonder they produced the most thrilling work as a result. But I mean, at the outbreak of the First World War, Florine was forced back to New York City and she was aged 43 at this time. I mean, what must this have been like to her, considering that this was such a kind of burgeoning new age, but also just the time when the French modernists had only just been exhibited in New York City? I mean, it was almost as though she was kind of ahead of the game. Right. And it was interesting because she'd already seen the Cubist, the Dada artist, long before the rest of America did. <laughs> and, and she wrote this wonderful poem about New York, then back to New York, and skies towers had begun to grow, and front stoop houses started to go, and life became quite different. And it was as though someone had planted seeds, and people sprouted like common weeds and seemed unaware of accepted things. Things and did all sorts of unheard of things. And out of it grew an amusing thing, which I think is America having its fling. And what I should like is to paint this thing. <gasps> and what she did is she said consciously, I am going to create a new style of art to capture this amazing thing that is happening in New York. And at the same time, Duchamp, who didn't want to go to war in France, kind of escaped to America. And the Stedheimers moved to West 76th Street to a house, and they began this salon. And they began hosting these wonderful dinners with things like feather soup and these (gasps) wonderful menus. I mean, fantastic menus. (laughs) And they invited all these artists, as well as writers, H.L. Mencken and Carl Sandburg and poets. All these fabulous people started coming. And unlike the other big salon in New York, the Ahrensburg Salon, Ahrensburgs were avant-garde, but they were not comfortable with people being out who were gay. Well, the Stedheimer's cousin was Natalie Barney. What? Who most people don't know. Who was famed in Paris for her amazing salons that Marie Laurence and everyone attended. Exactly. And she went out with Romaine Brooks. Exactly. And their lover was Romaine Brooks. So the Stedheimer salon, people were allowed to be very open about their sexuality, unlike the Ahrensbergs. 
And Stedheimer later, even when she painted her gay friends like Virgil Thompson, she would put these funny little motifs in. Like in Virgil Thompson's portrait, she put in a big black pansy. And in uh, Carl Van Vechten, she gave him a red tie. Both the black pansy and the red tie were codes for being gay. Virgil Thompson was very upset about it because he said, oh, everybody's going to know. And his friend said, <laughs> if they know, they know, you know, don't worry about it. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it was just very open in the Stettheimer salon. And she would play with that in her portraits. Yeah, because I think what what we often forget, or, you know, especially someone who's just coming to the work, it almost seems like this fantastical world. But actually, what she's doing is she's painting reality. This is New York City thriving. It's the 1920s. She's painting it in a synthesis with its growth and also the burgeoning of the new woman, the new age, and this kind of era of inclusivity. That interwar period, I mean, a bit like the Weimar era, it was so burgeoning. I mean, to be a woman at that time was actually liberating. It was very liberating. And in 1920, when women got the vote, the 1920s were the only era where Stedheimer played with these politically controversial eras. That's when she did her portraits. But that's also when she did these four or five paintings that are overtly political. And she did these two fantastic paintings. One of my favorites is called Spring Sale at Bendel's. I love that one. Nobody <laughs> else painted this subject. I mean, what a bizarre subject. It's Bendel's department store. And Mr. Bendel is standing at the bottom of this wonderful red staircase, actually frowning. All of these women in the painting are trying on dresses. But think how we try on dresses. We turn around and try and look at our backside in the mirror. In the center of the painting, it's a sail, right? There are all these well-dressed women grabbing scarves from each other, leaping at each other, trying to desperately grab one away from each other. There's a couple women who are struggling to get a dress over their heads. It's so realistic, but it's so hysterically funny. And who would paint this subject, right? But it's women within their own environment. There's another one she paints called Natatoria Mundine which is a women's pool. It's a pool men aren't allowed in. So it's all these women swimming naked, and she has them with big floats. But a couple of them are naked on half shells, like scallops, which is a reference, of course, to Botticelli. But in the corner, the only man is an exercise instructor with big biceps. So she's changing gender roles. But the man is the object of beauty who the women are looking at, right? Then she does two very political subjects. She never titles her paintings with location, except for two. One is Lake Placid, which was known as a highly anti-Semitic place. They had signs around Lake Placid that said, Hebrews should not enter this hotel. Jews and Catholics not wanted. But she titled her painting Lake Placid, and she shows her family, who were clearly Jewish, and a Catholic Peruvian ambassador, all swimming in the lake. Then she showed uh, Carl van Vechten, who was very involved with the Harlem Renaissance, was a good friend of hers. 
And he took Dushaw and her and a couple other friends to a segregated beach that has a long history in America of the African-Americans fighting against being thrown off the beach called Asbury Park. Well, Stedheimer painted this huge painting, but she shows these very elegant African-Americans playing and romping and these beautiful women walking on the beach. And she painted herself and her Redbecton and Duchamp in the painting. Yeah. I want to discuss her friendship with Duchamp because she she portrays him as well as Duchamp and Rose Sellevie, who was his female alter ego in 1923. And it's the most magnificent painting. It's kind of unlike a lot of her works in the sense that it's not packed full of you know vibrancy. It's actually just got two figures and they're kind of set against this beautiful mint green sort of blue background. And the frame has MD, 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 MD all around it. And it's just the most inventive frame that I've ever even seen in my life. I mean, tell us about their friendship. Rosa Levy was his female alter ego and Man Ray photographed him in a hat and makeup as Rose Levy. I believe that that photograph was based actually on his his imitating Florine. <gasps> no Florine way. was his model for that photograph. Florine often wore a hat very much like that. And if you look at pictures that other artists made of her wearing her hat and you look at that, they had a very close relationship. He loved her work. And in fact, he asked when she died to curate her retrospective at MoMA, which he did, which is the only artist exhibition he ever organized. And they had constant conversations. She made five portraits of him. And this major one, it also has a number of works of his, and he was a conceptual artist. So she made his background very light because in the center of it, there's this rope. And one of the things they discussed was his idea of the fourth dimension. Yeah. And so that's one way that she had of transcribing that. And in the painting she made of him are a number of his ready-mades, one of his paintings, the little horse's head from his business card from the Societe Anonyme. She's one of the few people who really understood his work. Yeah. Everybody says Stedheimer's paintings are fantastic decoration. Everything in Stedheimer's paintings are realistic. Yeah. She documented. She didn't make up. So it's a fantastic real understanding of who he was based on their friendship. But also just what an amazing portrait of someone and their work. And actually how interesting of an artist, of a painter, to put into a painting conceptual art. That's exactly right. And she wrote a poem about him called Douche. <laughs> but they were they were very close and they had great conversations about art. Oh, my God. Um, and she painted him into a number of her portraits. She refused to be photographed. All of the major photographers of the time were friends of Stedheimer. And Stedheimer refused to let people photograph because she always, even when she was 70, she painted herself about age 35, yeah. always in red stiletto <laughs> high heels. Yes. But 
The only one whose image of her she loved was Duchamp, painted a beautiful portrait drawing of her head. And they had a really lovely relationship. Yeah, you can tell. I love also the the portrait of his head, the gray one. Right. It has actual lines coming out of his head, which are like his brain exploding. Yeah. But it's also sort of reminiscent of one of those veils of Veronica, where there was a veil with Christ's head that would just reappear on this white piece of cloth. And it's just sort of this wonderful play on how women would just fall in love with Duchamp, you know? And he had this huge brain. He was brilliant. Yeah. Well, she captures the spirit of something. She, it's like the world is alive in her paintings and she gets that. You know, they're not conventional. They're human. They're real. But I mean, you mentioned Virgil Thompson earlier and from the end of 1928 until its premiere in 1934, she worked in the costumes and sets for Gertrude Stein's opera, Four Saints in Three Act. And Virgil Thompson did the music. Choreography was by Frederick Ashton and it was using an all African-American cast. I mean, tell us about this. So she never limited herself. No. And this is what's so fabulous. Virgil Thompson and Gertrude Stein decided to do an opera. And Gertrude Stein's writing is bizarre. I mean, her lyrics were, (laughs) the pigeons on the grass, alas, alas, the pigeons on the grass, alas. And they decided to do it on 17th century saints and call it four saints in three acts. But it had more than four acts and it had many, many more than four saints. So whatever. And Virgil Thompson came to New York and played the music for his friends, including Eddie Stettheimer. And she said, oh, my sisters need to hear it. And they heard it at the Stettheimer's house. And then Florine liked it so much, she invited him to her studio where all her paintings were and where she had huge curtains of cellophane because she designed her studio. And she had a two-floor studio that she made floral arrangements with cellophane flowers. She had two-story cellophane curtains. She designed her own furniture that matched her frames for some of her paintings. It was fantastic. All of her paintings were hung because she refused to sell them. So Virgil (laughs) Thompson came in and he just was so overwhelmed. He said to her immediately, you have to do the costumes and stage sets for our opera. She was thrilled because all her life she'd wanted to do this big Gesamtkund production. Yeah, she finally got her to ballet. <laughs> exactly. So he kept saying, send us drawings, send us something, because he went back to Paris and she wouldn't. Meanwhile, she made little shoe boxes that still exist and took like little pipe cleaners and made clay heads and she made every figure and every act in these shoe boxes and dress them in fabulous costumes, velvet robes with real pearl buttons, sewed lace. She made dancers with bare midriffs. And Virgil Thompson decided the only performers who could actually sing Gertrude Stein's lyrics were African-American. So he yeah. went to Harlem And hired this wonderful woman named Eva Jessup, who was the first woman African-American choral director. And they auditioned from choruses and churches, mostly, 
all African-American singers for the opera. I guess it was the height of the Harlem Renaissance. It was the height of the Harlem Renaissance. And most of these singers, they'd never sang opera before. So Eve Jessup had to train them and sing. Anyway, Florine designed every act. When Virgil Thompson came, she presented him with every act already designed. And the background was this fabulous cellophane (laughs) background. I love the use of cellophane. (laughs) It was a completely radical material. And the production opened in Hartford, which was the most avant-garde museum in America at the time. Everybody who was anyone came to the opening. Buckmeister Filler designed this great dress for a woman that was a cocktail dress during the reception and then opened up to a full ball gown. A special train was put on the New Haven line just to bring people up there. Oh, my God. George Gershwin went. What? And this opera inspired him to write Porgy and Bess, and he hired many of the performers and Eve Jessup to be in Porgy and Bess. It was a huge sensation. And it was so popular that it came to Broadway and was first opera on Broadway. It gave Florine the first time international fame. People weren't that happy with the music or the lyrics, but everyone, <laughs> the critics, loved Florine's background sets and decorations. Oh, my God, her contribution to 20th century culture is literally akin to none. I mean, the people she was bringing together, the the, the arts that she was bringing together, it's just sensational. But I mean, then, I mean, around this time as well, she's making her most famous series, which I urge everyone, if you're in New York, go and have a look at these. These are her cathedrals. Tell us about the cathedrals. The cathedrals are extraordinary. They are huge. There are four of them. They were painted at different times, but they are really a summation of the four central tenets of what makes New York City great. Finance, the entertainment industry, the motion pictures, wealthy social Fifth Avenue and its stores, and the new big art museums. Yeah. And in each one, she makes fun of them. Yeah. (laughs) But every single detail, it is a documentation. For instance, the cathedrals of Broadway, every light arrangement in the sky represents the lighting frontispiece of an actual moving picture theater of the time. Wow. You see her and her sister and nephew entering on the left. You get your ticket, you enter, and you would sit in the audience, and there would be a ballet. There would be an orchestra that would rise from the ground. There would be ice skaters. And then that's all before there would be a black and white movie. Amazing. And then we have the cathedrals of Fifth Avenue. And this is amazing. I mean, even Tiffany's are spelled out in jeweled letters. And, you know, it's funny because she was very clear in her diary. She believed marriage took away a woman's creativity. So the center of the cathedrals of Fifth Avenue is a wedding. Yeah. And all the figures can be identified. 
including a lot of her friends, and she and her sisters arriving in Rolls Royce. And the bridegroom is very clear. The bride's face is just white fuzz, almost invisible, because brides to Florine were, it ruined a woman. It's creativity to get married. And then the Wall Street and then the cathedrals of art. I mean, it's just sublime and also just captures the kind of vivacity of the era and the kind of excitement and the kind of play on religion. I mean, essentially, she's also a satirist. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the cathedrals of art is so brilliant because the center is the Metropolitan Museum. And it's in the Metropolitan Collection, right? Yes. (laughs) And the left is the modern and the right is the Whitney. And it is at the moment that the Metropolitan Museum is trying to get MoMA and the Whitney to merge. The director, Alfred Barr, of the Museum of Modern Art on the left has just been fired. So he's (laughs) sitting in a chair like Whistler's mother and... Elements of the Picasso painting are dancing on the Mondrian painting like it's hopscotch. (gasps) On the right, Juliana Force, the director of the Whitney, has just decided to disband the Whitney and probably merge into the Metropolitan Museum. So the museum is almost empty. And Florine has decided, since the Metropolitan Museum is against contemporary art, At the front of the whole painting, there's a little fat baby. Yeah. And all around it are all these journalists and photographers photographing it. And the baby represents contemporary art. And all the journalists, they don't care about anything else in the painting. They're photographing baby art. Yeah. And then you see baby art two more times in the painting because nobody cares about baby art. No one wants contemporary art, which is, of course, what Stedheimer paints. Totally, but what a sort of fantastic observation of the art world in 1942. I mean, also bearing in mind she was 70 years old at this point. I mean, you know, she's not young. She is going out there and she knows exactly what is happening. And also the 40s is when everything switched in the New York art world. You know, the 50s was a different story altogether. But I mean, she didn't live to see that. I mean, she died aged 72 in 1944. And she never sold her art because she wanted it all to enter a museum as a single collection, which is why she never sold it. And since museums always wanted to show her art and always took it to collections, she knew it would end up in a museum. And when she died, her sister, Eddie, donated it to every major museum across the United States, four to the Metropolitan, two to MoMA. And she was so loved by museums. That's why her work wasn't on the market. Yeah. And the problem is, just like you said, by the 1950s, she died in 46, Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and the Abstract Expressionists were all the style. So Stedheimer's paintings were no longer in style, so they went in the basement. Yeah. Meanwhile, by the 70s and the 80s, O'Keefe and Frida Kahlo still had artwork that was out in the market. So it began showing up in galleries and at auction and slowly began getting recognized and making money, which is why they suddenly became very famous. Stedheimer 
was in museum basements. Yeah. And when work is not seen, it doesn't get recognized. But she always, always didn't sell her work because she knew museums wanted it and she always knew its value. In fact, her friends would get angry at her because when she would show in a gallery, which she would do, she'd price her work. And one of her friends wrote this to their parents. She'd price her work at the equivalent of $3 million at the time. (laughs) Good for her. But I mean, you mentioned earlier, but in 1946, Duchamp and her critic friend Henry McBride organized a posthumous retrospective of her work at MoMA, which traveled to Chicago and San Francisco. I mean, tell us about this. I mean, how was it received? The museums wrote back and said they had great crowds and they asked to extend the show in Chicago. And it was the first retrospective by a woman painter at MoMA. Wow. And O'Keefe did the eulogy at her funeral. Is that right? Yep. That's so cool. So cool. But here's a funny story. When Stieglitz brought young O'Keefe to meet his friend Florian Stettheimer, he had just done his first show of O'Keefe and he took photographs, which I'm sure you know, of parts of her body. Yeah. So Stedheimer comes and she opens the door and there's Stieglitz and this young woman, O'Keefe, and she says, Oh, Miss O'Keefe, it's so nice to meet you whole, as up till now I've only known you in parts. (laughs) Amazing, amazing. We begin the episode with Georgia O'Keefe and we end with Georgia O'Keefe. That's fantastic. Barbara Blooming, thank you so much. As is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could say anything or ask Florin something, what would it be? What do you regret the most? Barbara Blooming, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the fantastic Barbara Blooming on the staggeringly inventive and brilliant Florian Stettheimer. Thank you so much to my sound editor, Nardus Manelic, and also my research assistant, Viva Ruji. Thanks again to my amazing sponsor, Alighieri Jewelry. Follow their journey on at Alighieri underscore jewelry to hear all about their latest collections and discover their magical talismans at Alighieri.com. Don't forget to use the code TGWA at checkout for a 10% discount. 